Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Are you still here, Matt? And that's what I've come to discover are the secrets of the universe and the kingdom of God. <laughs> well, I'm glad I got it recorded. <laughs> and I go back and listen to it. Yeah, yeah. And that's it in an eggshell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners yeah. will be glad to get that. Yeah, it was like two minutes of just total silence. I'm waiting for your next blog. You were so popular that your audience is going to, they're demanding more. Well, Ray Charles, you know, once said, you know, always leave them wanting more. You know, hope, hope is a, it's a powerful thing. Except Jim, who has actually seen Jesus. Oh, yeah, I would, I'd like to hear that story. What do you look like? I'm speechless. If uh, <laughs> My daughter-in-law was in the ER, and she said I was purple, and the computer flatlined for like 15 minutes. 15 minutes? My goodness. And the, and the nurse was giving me CPR, and the doctor said, you can stop, he's gone. Well, <laughs> man. Maybe he needed a coffee break and just wanted to get out of there, you know, so. <laughs> but my daughter-in-law said her and the nurse, you know, looked at each other and uh, decided the doctor was, didn't know what he was doing. And she kept working on me and I came back. That is amazing. What, how, like, what was your experience if you're open to sharing it? Like what? I didn't see a face, but I was like on my back. Were you ever in a, were you ever in a room and you felt like someone was was close to you and, and you looked around and there was somebody like close to you. You picked up someone's personal presence. Yeah, absolutely. But I felt there was a personal energy all around me that mm -hmm. wasn't me, but I, I felt completely saturated with understanding and love. No conditions. I didn't feel, feel like I had any hoops to jump through, but it was so real. It was like more real than real. And then, then I just came out of it and was in the ER. Wow. Did you hear, you didn't hear any voice or any? No. Uh, yeah. no, all I can say is I just felt a personal energy that wasn't me. That's all I can say. Uh, Jim, both of these guys are hospice chaplains. Oh, so really? they're both experts, I think, in this experience. Uh, do, you, uh, do you both have testimony as to patients that have had these experiences? Uh, just being around the, the trade of hospice workers and storytelling. And, and often it's nurses who are there at the bedside at the moment of death. Or when people are really close to death, you hear stories family members recount. I, I really love your story, Jim. I, I don't know that I hear very many that are counter- to that uh like if anybody has a story at all it's usually always a positive one you know or they're they're seeing loved ones who have gone before them and talking to them in sort of a dream state yeah i would know? say that the majority of my patients well maybe a majority is a stretch but a whole lot of them have that experience of seeing people who they describe as helpful people who are sort of comforting them or a comforting presence or, or like a guide um, one lady even saw her a dog that she loved very much. So like Jim said, who knows if these are just the synapses, you know, or the, the brain sort of shutting down or whatever, but they all 
seem to report a pretty positive uh, experience. I have a patient right now who said that she had a stroke and she uh, saw a young man who wasn't a man, but resembled a, a young man who told her that they weren't ready for her yet and that she needed to, they need, she needed to come back. So she has always struggled with um, what her purpose is, you know, in the interim because she's suffering, you know, on hospice. But, you know, she's been able to talk to her grandkids and share the gospel with them. And so, you know, that could definitely be it. And Matt, you and Jim are the other one who could, unless Paul, you've died before too. I don't know. <laughs> uh, could answer this is, have you ever felt that same feeling or something that was very close to that same feeling when you were alive? Yes, I absolutely have um, a couple times. So then in 2006, um, I went to a Christian rehab called the promised land in Myrtle beach. And I got baptized and I remember, um, I went down to the water and I was like, I was trembling almost. I was like, man, I knew that this was a, this is going to be like a turning point, uh, in my destiny kind of thing. And I remember whenever I came up out of the water, I had a very similar feeling of, of, of sort of uh, profound peace and lightness and love and, and just a joy, like a deep, deep sense of, of joy. Um, and then the only other time I can think of that it's on the order of that is uh, whenever I was received into the Orthodox church, my first communion experience, you know, I was really struggling with a lot of different things because, you know, becoming an Orthodox Christian is kind of like a big deal I, because I have friends like Paul and other friends and I knew that family members and stuff were going to have uh, a big problem with it. And in the Orthodox Church, whenever it's your first communion, you know, you're holding the candle and you're the first one, you know, in line. You know, we, we all say a prayer together before the communion. We ask the Holy Spirit to make the bread and the, the wine, the body and blood of Christ. And I remember standing in line and I was like really nervous and i was just like man i i hope that i'm sort of like doing the, the right thing even though i knew i was i knew i knew that, that 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 was the right thing to be doing but i just have had a hard time i guess finding my place within the within the church and i remember i had this like really profound sense of uh I, I, this might seem like a weird word but of uh, of hospitality mm. i felt like uh, i felt like the lord was saying to me come and receive you know come you know come forward you know come come uh to my table receive receive the you know uh, my body and blood it was a profound sense of uh acceptance and love and peace and so i guess it's a little bit different with orthodox christianity because we're, we we believe that god uses uh, the material you know god became flesh uh god you know participated in the created order of things and so good and it's it's changed you know so we said that you know we say that when christ was baptized it's not that the water's did anything to change our Lord Jesus Christ is that our Lord Jesus Christ changes the waters. You know, he changes the earth by his presence here. And so we have things like holy water. Um, of course, like the bread and wine is consecrated, you know, the oil. So we have different things like that, even the icons and stuff like that. When they, when they apply that, uh, that holy chrism, you know, they put it on your hands and on your forehead and stuff. And you kind of, it's just this incredible sense of, joy and, and peace it's 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 very it's very special man it's it's like a it's, it's it's like a mystical sort of very mysterious thing uh but very very real we were in the midst of a conversation uh actually talking about after death experiences jim described his and and then brian asked the wonderful question have you had 
an experience on the order of an after-death experience when you were fully conscious. And Matt was telling that. And now Brian and Jim are, Brian's going to answer his own question, I guess. Yeah. Well, I wanted to share with y'all what I consider to be my, the Psalm that sort of sticks to me the best because it meant the most to me during, uh, I mean, I've had many, many times in my life where I've just taken a deep breath and, and felt that I was in the presence of of God and everything was okay and I was gonna it was I was comfortable and uh, I felt surrounded you know by love and uh, it wasn't ecstatic and it wasn't necessarily uh, out of body uh, but when I, I say that I mean it was truly it just it's normal embodied life that just feels right feels good and but there's been a couple of times when it overwhelmed me because maybe it was it just it just shocked me from either it was new to me one time when I was in my 20s all alone and I was I was the only person in my apartment I don't know I was going through a lot at the time spiritually uh, uh, emotionally formed uh, separating from my family of origin and uh, reflecting on the, the the sadness the depression or the deep deep thoughts deep feelings or that confused me and 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 trying to understand I was in seminary so I was I was sort of had people around me who could help walk me through this just learning how to pray basically and it was a big moment for me one time when I just realized that I felt God's presence that God just wasn't a thought God wasn't just a uh, um, a distant sort of figure that I knew to be father who was sort of maybe somewhere else on the prop property <laughs> and I knew he was there but wasn't there but but was like as I was looking in the mirror and you know just have, having sort of an existential moment I was just overtaken by the fact that God's right here with me you are right here with me I was speaking in first person right so but then um probably 10, 15 years later, I had another experience where I was kind of living in some very tense circumstances and not real sure about the relationship that I was in. It was, it was, I was between my, I, I was divorced um, before and before I married my wife. Now uh, I was single and uh, it was just one person that I dated and you know that while there were good things about it, I, I just felt like she was not somebody that I should be with, and I was—I guess I was scared, or I was like not wanting to be alone, or something. And so there was this real tension in me, and I, it came to a point where I was just sitting one morning and reading scripture, and this psalm was what I read, but it's real short, and it says, "Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes arrogant." nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I have certainly soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child resting against his mother. My soul within me is like a weaned child. Israel, wait for the Lord from this time on and forevermore. And I was just taken by reading that into a real sense that I was being held by God and that, that, that there was nothing that I wanted to trade in for that experience. You know, like if I was just going to choose my own way and do my own thing and, and um, try to figure things out on my own 
and not listen to what he was telling me to do, especially in regards to this relationship that um, I, it was no choice. Like I, hands down, I'll choose this over anything in the world. So it was like, I don't want to put myself in a position where I will forget what this feels like or not want it anymore or don't believe I can attain it or that it's not available. That's my story of it. Cause I, I mean, I feel like I, I know that's what it will be like to die unless I die in pain, which is possible. But even then uh, to recognize that you can't lose that. If it's, if it really is what I think it is God's presence, then I can't lose it. Never. Yeah. And it's available right now, right now. This is kind of our topic, if anybody else wants to address it. Oh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You got anything? I'm afraid if I compared my story to yours, that um, sort maybe it comes through in the way that I wrote this section and talked about the abiding in Christ. I think as a child, you know, we lived in Texas, and I spent a lot of time, I, I really, my parents would go to church and I would go camping, but I always considered my camping, my going out to meet God, you know, and in my naivete, I always felt a strong presence there in nature. In fact, when I, there came a time when I didn't feel it and I kind of lost it and sought it again. And I, I've decided that it's always there. I think that's the, you know, this feeling of God's presence. I've written about it as the experience of the sublime. And it's not necessarily just that, but especially in Missouri, I couldn't do this. In Missouri, it would just be stark fear because when the, it lightnings or, you know, I, I don't want to be out in the lightning in Missouri. But in Texas, you can see the lightning and the thunder, and it's not threatening. It's at a distance, you know, and so you can, you can look at it and admire it. And that's what I think the definition of the sublime is that you, you feel this awesome power, but you're not threatened by the power that you experience it and you feel complete safety and a kind of awe at the power. And that's what I've often felt out in in nature you're using naivete in a positive sense yes i i am i had become a great fan of henry david thoreau who is a, just a pagan you know <laughs> there's i don't think there's anything christian about henry david thoreau which is not exactly right i think there's something profoundly christian in his love of nature his descriptions of nature that was my naive part that i just expected to that i could experience the presence of god in in uh in, in that fashion and i think we can i think that's what we're all describing that that at any point we can just turn around just appreciate mm. what it is that we have mm. in life that we're alive and just the maybe it's a feeling of profound gratitude a recognition of the gifts that that were given in life that was kind of my point this week with you know we often talk about proofs for god 
Actually, the proofs, and I know I know this is suspicious language. We've all been kind of thrown off by a, a raw experientialism. And so I'm not advocating some sort of raw experientialism. But shouldn't the Christian life have an experiential aspect to it? And by this, I don't mean some ecstatic experience or some dramatic experience, but that we can just tap into a phenomena of love, recognition of the, the love of God, love of other people, just kind of the love of the, you know, that is just we're soaked in. John talks about it in terms of obedience, but in, in a sense of maybe it's just getting old. I don't know. But uh, as a young man, I never felt I was really in control of anything in terms of my own capacities for obedience or for doing what I, you know, ma mainly I was doing what I probably shouldn't have been doing. There is a sense that we kind of, that we kind of come into harmony with and recognize that who we are and what we should be is in this is in is a, a wisdom and profound truth in obedience, and then also in just the sense of we talk about belief as if belief is something we have to strive for. I think that we all go through periods of doubt, and and we question, but I also think that. Uh, you know, that belief is just something, for me, it feels like at this point in my life, I have no alternative. And what I mean by that, the belief is a kind of itself, a kind of living proof, a gift, uh, that I see people around me that don't have it. I can't say that I comprehend life. You know, this is what I enjoy doing, I that I think that we're delving into uh, the deep things of the world, of reality, of human personality, of God. To imagine life, you know, apart from that, it would be a kind of two-dimensional sort of experience. And so that, that's not, you know, necessarily dramatic, but I think that's what we are supposed to continually tap into, is this just this deep phenomenological appreciation for the life that we have in, and recognizing that it, it's a, a gift that's been given to us. Oh, I, um, you have in other places described that you had to be educated out of that childlike naivete into whatever it is that you're, that you're describing. Actually, I actually have an experience with you. I actually have a few uh, with you where I've actually seen you know, you're not you're not like a particularly sort of overly emotional person or anything like that. But I've, I've had profound experiences, even in your classes and in, in a lot of our conversations just on a Saturday, you know, just talking about this type of thing that I would say come very close to the things that we were describing earlier about a profound sense of peace and joy uh, in the spirit, a sense of unity and friendship where Christ is clear. He says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there. And I think that you and I have definitely experienced that presence. Uh, it's a, it's a delight. Words don't, you know, can't capture it, but you, you and I know, uh, what I'm trying to get at. If we went to a conference up in Wheaton to see a guy named N.T. Wright give a talk and he did the chapel. He did the chapel that day. He was the speaker in the chapel that day. And you had taken up the, I think it was the honors uh, class uh, that went up to Wheaton to see him talk. And you and I had always talked about 
you know, contemporary Christian music and how we were, we never really quite got into it, never kind of saw what was so other people experience it in this really profound, powerful way. And they, they, you know, they, they get emotional and stuff like that. And you and I never quite got it, but men's choir there at Wheaton sang. And I remember we were there and I was standing right beside you and they were doing the, the Martin Luther hymn. Mighty fortresses are God. Mighty fortresses are God, you know? And I just looked over at you and you just had, you know, you had tears and I'd never seen you like that. And you looked at me and you pointed at me and you said, now that's what Christian music is supposed to sound like. And I never, I never <laughs> forgot that, you know, but I would say that that was one of those experiences, you know, it's like, um, it's just like life, you know, sometimes life is just the mundane stuff, you know, you're, you're doing this and you're doing that. And other times, you know, you get married or you get baptized or you're doing, you know, you're having communion or you're talking to your best friend about the, the scriptures on the, on the road to Emmaus, which I was just studying uh, Emmaus uh, translates to warm wells, hmm. you know, you know, they're on the road and they say, man, was our heart not burning within us as we talked about the scriptures on the, on the way, you know, as he opened them up to us and that there are those profound experiences. And before everyone got onto the call, we were talking about how we shouldn't isolate, you know, the spiritual life into just those moments of sort of high flying you know, emotions and insights and delights and things like that. The whole point of theosis, right? That unity of God is to see the logos that pervades all of creation, that uh, is everywhere present and filling all things. And that the task that we've been given as followers is to attunate, you know, to attunate our spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and even our sense of smell and our sense of touch and taste and all these different, we, we can taste and see that the Lord is good and uh, hear, O Israel, and all these different things, you know. That's kind of like the business that we're to be about. Yeah, and I think that we're describing experiences that uh, I, I think we could make a mistake and be dismissive of. And I don't think we should. In other words, I think that when we have these profound experiences or, or when we, you know, just the peace that we know is there, I think part of it is just recognizing it for what it is and acknowledging this is the presence of God. This is what I was made for. Uh, I think that's half of it, actually, because I think our tendency may be, oh, I've had this profound experience and to in some way, try to explain it away. No, you've, you've, you've had the experience and that experience is itself an insight. And so I think this is part of what we're, you know, that in a kind of modernist frame, what we want to do is we want to separate out doctrine and ethics. And we want to, in some way, imagine that the experiential, because that has often been overdone, and has been emphasized in a kind of isolated fashion. But I think that there should just be an expectation of a phenomena of what the Christian life should look like, that it should be characterized by, I think, love and peace, and that those should be characteristics that we learn to dwell in those things and, and have an appreciation for them and understand that you know, that's missing in, in so many people's lives and have, have a great gratitude for, for what that is. And Paul, we've talked about uh, David Bentley Hart's book, The Experience of God. The subtitle, you know, is Consciousness, 
you know, it's right. It's like he's talking being consciousness and bliss. And really the point of that book is to just say that even having consciousness and participating in existence itself is already a participation in the divine life, uh, in the life of God. And that what comes with that being consciousness is that bliss, you know, that I just thought that that's a, it's a simple, but a profound point that we may take for granted. Just the fact of our being, you know, is already a participation in the being of God, that our consciousness is already a participation in the, the life uh, in, in, for lack of a better word, you know, the consciousness of God. Again, the, the process of, of theosis is, is realizing uh, that unity uh, with God and, and with, you know, even with ourselves and with the, everything around us and everyone around us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this week is very important, but in a sense, it, it may be just taking things uh, that we thought of in one way and thinking of them in another way. And that is, what is the temple? Well, the temple is the household of God. What is, you know, the many mansions that Christ is preparing? Well, that's a, that is also, uh, you know, the word is minno, is abiding with. It's the same word John is using throughout, that, that abiding, uh, you know, that my father's house, that the, the has many rooms. Uh, in other words, the, that we often take that as a reference to heaven, and we take the temple as a reference, we'll think it is, uh, that Jewish place. But of course, that it's all the same thing in, in John, and that may be the only strange part of this, is that we're talking about that God has come to his temple in Christ to abide with people, and this is the purpose of creation revealed to us in the temple. And that singular thought, I think, is woven through throughout. I mean, that's really what's happening in the great high priestly prayer. You know, this is, we're kind of on, we're doing John 14, 15, you know, that's kind of the, the subject is, well, where does all this lead? In a, in a more basic sense, what does it mean to be saved? And of course, we're not answering this in the way that we're used to hearing. What it means to be saved is to be a participant in who God is. You know, Jesus' prayer that as I am in you and you are in me and we're, well, that is one that we are incorporated into that relationship. And that I think that very much ties into our picture of this abiding uh, with Christ. And of course, I may be better at describing the disruption of that. Uh, I think that most of my book, and actually I think most of what post-modernity is, I think that most of our experience is actually a disruption of this abiding. We almost need to appreciate the, the one uh, through the other. And that is that a kind of violent ontology that we've been describing, that it might be the identity through difference. It could be, you know, any kind of dualism, that we're surrounded by a kind of violent language in which agonistic struggle, dualism. And, and part of this, I did this last week, I kind of tied it in this week. People are so desperate, I think, for violence. I know that sounds strange, but in other words, to make Christ out to be violent, 
that actually they've taken the things and I, I almost don't, I mean, we can talk about it if you want, but to me, it's such a ridiculous conversation to, you know, is Jesus cleansing of the temple justification for grenades, machine guns, atomic weaponry, boy, that should be a stretch, you know, for anybody. But just the idea that Jesus is violent, there has been a misapprehension. And of course, that's not there for 300 years. We can trace it, that it's Augustine who poses, he takes the cleansing of the temple and he makes it, he uses that as justification for being violent toward the heretics. And this is just kind of the history of Christianity that we've lost the, the peaceable kingdom. We've lost the nonviolence. And so in a sense, we've lost track of what sin is. Sin is just this uh, alienation, this, uh, this struggle, this agonistic struggle. And abiding in Christ is re the resolution to that. I see John as just, you know, that, that's what I think he's in the washing of the disciples' feet. What is he washing them of exactly? The residue of the world. Okay. And, and what form does that residue or that impurity, I, I think it takes a characteristic form. Power maybe in, in some sort of power over other people. I mean, that's right. obviously in the washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus right. is making himself a servant. And so there's a relinquishing of lording it over other people. Boy, that's no fun. Let, fill that out then. Power, the filth of the world. Can we specify what that is? Obligation. And that, that's not the perfect word, but it gets at it. What I want to say is, that what he was washing them of was, I say obligation, and I really kind of mean like striving or the agonistic struggle, really. I mean, the, the, the sense that the kingdom is achieved by taking this thing and reconciling with this thing in our own power. It's already done for you, and, and, and you just live in it. You just rest in it. You just even work in it. You, even your your ministry is a Sabbath ministry. Your 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 work is a labor of love. So it takes away that obligation. Uh, that's the only word I can come up with. Y'all may have a one that you can help me come to. What he was washing them of there. And if it's in the story, I hope it uh, resonates with what I just said because I don't know what what you're referring to. Well, it certainly fits with Nicodemus. If Nicodemus is constrained by something that keeps him. From Jesus, it's his Jewish obligations. It's his status. It's his, you know, his high position in the society. Mm -hmm. But even Peter, you know, Peter wants to do. He boy, Peter's eager. But of course, Peter sees he, he doesn't understand what it is he has to relinquish. First of all, he says, you know, Jesus says, well, "I'll wash your feet." Peter said, "No, not mine. You're not going to do that to me." Mm -hmm. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, then you are not of mine. Then G Peter says, well, I wash my whole body. Give me a bath. And Jesus says, well, you don't need a bath, uh, that you're partially cleansed. And of course, what the, I think the whole reference is, I think there's double entendre in the whole conversation. 
that it is in that foot-washing conversation that the sin of Judas, you know, that he's going to betray Jesus. But of course, the sin of Judas, I think, is also being pinpointed that in a sense, the, the thing that they all share is that same problem, that same, you know, as you describe it, obligation, that same value system that if you put, especially if you put it together with the other gospels that they go around, they say, is it me, Lord? You know, am I the one? Or is there not, or, you know, they're not really sure who it is. And they're not sure that it's not them. Mm. They all feel capable of that kind of transgression. Uh, I think I mentioned this. I think we can demonize Judas. And I think, no, the idea is that uh, this, this is part of the, you know, we talked about the handing over. But the betrayal of Jesus by Judas is one that, in, in a sense, they all participate in. And the way you don't betray Jesus is you do what Jesus did, that you lay down your life in the way that he is laying down his life. Peter said, oh, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, oh, really, will you? And he said, yeah. Actually, Jesus quotes Peter to Peter. Uh, you know, will you lay down? And of course, what Peter means is I'll chop off a bunch of ears and I'll go down fighting. Uh, he can't conceive of laying down his life in the manner. And so I think the, the particular dirt, the particular filth, the particular uncleanness is this clinging. I think this is the, the thing that the temple needs cleansing of, that we're going to cleanse, you know, the, the, the depiction is of the death being cleansed in the temple, that it is life displacing death. And of course, the thing that kills in Jesus' depiction is this clinging to life that he who would save his life is losing it. That is, there's a, a kind of deadly uh, death-dealing clinging to life that is preventing life in Christ. There is a grabbing for life. There is the, you know, the, the literal warrior attitude or the, the, you know, economic attitude, if you will, of Judas or whatever that is that's causing him to betray Jesus. And so I think the servant attitude of Christ, the laying down his life, that is the resolution to the impurity of the world, the giving of life in the, in the midst of this. Uh, it is just a reorientation to, and maybe this is the, the wrong way to say it, a reorientation to death in that death is no longer the controlling factor. In other words, as long as we're striving to gain life, it's as if we don't have it and we need to gain it through obligation, through power, through status. You know, how, how are you going to gain life? That's what this week is about. How do you, what does it mean to abide in Christ? I think it's this reversal of orientation. Prior, we might have called it a kind of death denial, death resistance. And I, the death acceptance, yes, but it's death acceptance. It's actually life acceptance that life is given to us by God. I think that's what the true picture of the temple is about. I think that's what the, the picture of uh, the work of Christ is about. It's not that Christ dies in John in order to pay a penalty 
to, you know, none of that. It is that he's dying for the life of the world, for the life of the sheep, for the life of his disciples, that the world might have life and have it more abundant. It's like stepping through a false a false idea of life into another life. That's it. That's so. That's my understanding of it. It's uh, I've compared it to the matrix. You know that we're all we're all tied up in this matrix, and the matrix may consist of economics. It may consist of our, our value system, but I think at the the core of the matrix that Christ is undoing is this thing that we're talking about of a violent death resistance and what is being circulated is always you know it's uh we're taking life from other people we're taking life as if you can do that uh as if it's something that is a commodity to be traded i and that's strangely the way that i think that is a pagan sacrificial system that is strangely put upon the jewish sacrificial system but I think the Jewish sacrificial system, rightly understood, is a reversal of that, that it's God giving life. That's the story of Abraham. That's the, you know, Isaac's blood is God-given life. That's what Isaac represents. I think we need to tie the story of Abraham to the story of the temple and the sacrifices there so that what is always being offered up is life. God is giving us life, and death is being cleansed out. And that, of course, is fulfilled, I think, in, in Christ. Yeah, you know, this is the thing that John Milbank and many others have done. David Bentley Hart does it nicely. Just kind of sums up how it is that the matrix of the world is one of violence. And that's why this the peaceable kingdom I think is just an impossibility for most people because they can't imagine a world in which violence is not the controlling factor. The way that we picture the world is that peace is achieved uh, over a kind of originary violence, over that it's, it's the enforcement of a peace, and that in some way we achieve this thing by either through uh, an ordering of the chaos or by a kind of picture of the a holistic, you know, we're going to fit everything in to a singular frame as if we can do that. I always go back to um, secularism and the idea of the imminent frame, but I think that's what John is doing when he pictures the Jews, Nicodemus, these various persons, what he's giving us a picture of is a closed and imminent frame. And of course, what they're trying to do is organize the world, make it a cosmos. I think that's the key, you know, the, a closed cosmos or a cosmic order that we're going to order the, 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 create the system. And that is inherently violent. And what is taking place in Christ is a penetrating of that imminent frame that the gift of God is from out of that frame entirely, tra transcendence. It is true giftedness. I think it was one of your readings where they mentioned where, when Jesus is talking to Pilate, I guess, and saying, you know, you are right, you say I'm a king, and kind of emphasizing the fact that in the world, you know, kingdoms are made by, by force. 
you you know Rome was ruling the Jews whatever wherever you look at you know I can't just people I have to have a piece of paper that says I can leave my country or go into another country everything's by by a gun by law whereas here's Jesus saying you want to you want to follow me just follow me you know he's not yeah. making anybody you know god god is the one person the one person who actually has the right and the authority to compel us to to follow him and yet he is the one power who doesn't do that he says come yeah and by the way this is the this is the brilliance of somebody like uh, Jacques Derrida atheist that he is he has this profound depiction of violence uh, that Derrida and Foucault and what they're all describing is the, a necessary violence. And Derrida then comes up with the idea of gift. You know, is it possible to give a gift? And of course, his idea is, well, and in Japan, you may feel this more. You know, if I give my neighbor a gift, we actually in our neighborhood, uh, uh, we had uh, somebody in the nearby neighborhood die and so our neighborhood decided we'd give them a gift in order to you know kind of to recognize the death and that neighborhood which was part of this that one neighborhood was old farm you know the farm community the other was kind of the scientific you know new people community the old farm community they got it really angry at our community because, well, they said, now that you've given us a gift, now we're going to be obligated forever to give you gifts. <laughs> and that's the way gift giving works in Japan. And that's what Derrida's point is about. You can't really give a gift because the gift, uh, Brian, this is your word, the gift comes with obligations. Once you give a gift, then the other person is under your obligation or you feel obliged. And Derrida's point is that it's it's almost it's impossible to give a gift, but of course I think that the that's what we have in Christ that that's what we that there really is a gift that that's what grace is. We've been gifted. It is not at, at least it's not with the strings attached sort of violence in this world's economy in the way that we usually experience it. And I think this ties into our conversation. What is the sign or significance of Jesus cleansing the temple? Is this an act of violence? Is that what's taking place? What is this about? That's, I think it might be in Psalms. I can't remember if it's in Psalms or Isaiah or Zechariah. The, the seal of thy house. That, that's what did them in. They were so eager to protect the uh, temple and to keep the status quo intact that they they. They put a mark on him, you know. You, your your days are numbered, so to speak. That's yeah, just one yeah, part. That, that, yeah, you said several significant things. One is that the the temple is where God lives. I mean, in the simplest fashion. Well, what is the true temple? It's not a building made by hands, but the picture is that the temple is a depiction of the God's cosmic dwelling place. That this world, and that's what's represented in the Jewish temple. So for, I think we often miss step one, that the, the temple is a microcosmos. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a place where God meets people. In other words, that's what's taking place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, and then 
the, the representatives of the Jews who are representative of everybody, that Jesus then is the true temple, right? This is the significance. The presence of God had left the temple. It was never really, as I understand it, connected with Herod's temple. Nobody's really concerned. You know, is Jesus wanting to clean up Herod's temple? I don't think Jesus, you know, I don't think that's what this is about. And so I think we need to count this as one of the signs. It's not a miraculous sign, but it's a sign. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. The way you put it, Jim, this audit of what the temple should be occurs with the temple in terms of its being where God and his people meet. It is being examined in John through a preparation for the Passover. What's the Passover? Cleansing of death, a displacement of death with life. That's, in my understanding, the singular movement of salvation. If we had to put Rene Girard into this, I, I really like what Girard doing. I fully agree with Girard. But I think if we had to place Girard in our depiction of, of the two goats, I think Girard's depiction in his own understanding fits with the scapegoat. In other words, people scapegoat, and they imagine that this is sacred and salvific. And of course, the irony is, John Stott, I think I used, but also John Calvin, just says, you know, he says, well, the Azazel goat is the one sacrifice of expiation. Do you hear the contradiction? Even Calvin knows, he says, there is no sacrifice of an unclean animal. That's the whole point of sacrifice. And yet Calvin wants to make the Azazel goat the sacrifice. So I think ironically, we have in Calvin and in Calvinists a picture of scapegoating that is, that is exposed. That's only half the story. That is half the story, but it's only half the story. In other words, I think Rene Girard gives us a good depiction. Is Christ the scapegoat? Oh, he's the Yahweh goat. I mean, to go back a few minutes ago, I mean, like, I mean, is Gerard giving us really, he's really giving us the, the closed system, the, the closed cosmos. David Bentley Hart, I think somewhere in his, maybe Christ in Nothing essay, talks about two sacrificial orders, that the cross exposes two sacrificial orders, the closed system that we've been talking about, the scapegoat, the Zazzle goat, the sacrificial order of God exposes that as meaningless. That is, God doesn't need a sacrifice, doesn't need anything from us, but gives. Yeah. <laughs> we give him Jesus, and we give Jesus up to sacrifice to preserve the order. God gives us back our sacrifice. And the same thing happens with Isaac. Abraham brings Isaac to sacrifice to God, and God simply gives him back to, to, to Abraham. I like that. As usual, I thought, oh, I've thought of a really great idea here. And you said, oh, David Bentley Hart already thought of this. <laughs> I, to me, yeah, that, that what we have going in the scapegoat is, is what pagan religions always do. In order, but that's what's exposed. And to link that with Christ and to just say that Christ is another scapegoat, well, that first of all, it's a misreading of Gerard. I mean, Gerard's point is, no, there's an exposure of the scapegoating mechanism. They're going to scapegoat Christ, but he's not really a 
I think Gerard says this himself, that there's actually a division, you know, of those who would scapegoat. And then this other community that understands that the, 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 his followers. And so the Yahweh goat, I think, is the real where the action is. And I think that ties into this, this question is that the cleansing of the temple, and Jim, you just say that, in other words, it is what has always been cleansed from the temple the cleansing of death from the temple. And so the sign is the sign of resurrection. Here is life. It cannot be put down. It cannot be muted. You guys are talking about David Bentley Hart. What is the essay? Christ and nothing. Is he saying, I mean, that's that, that, that what we're up against is nothing. That's the heart of the essay, at least the heart, the heart of the essay that I find interesting. He, he talks about how I think the broader point of the essay is how Christianity exposed paganism to be nothingness. And now what do we do as Christianity washes away? What's left but nihilism? It's always been nihilistic, but I think the nihilism is just front and center now. Yeah, yeah. About René Girard, that um, there's a something he makes the point of kind of maybe brings the two goats back together because he, he actually says, Yes, he was treated as a scapegoat, Christ was, but the way that he uh, empties the whole mechanism is he's the first actually and truly innocent scapegoat. In a way, it's, he's both, both goats. I'm like, he, he is treated as one who is sent away, killed in order to bring peace by the same mechanism but he undermines it because he is truly innocent and is, is not just mythologized afterwards. It came to me just now as, as you're talking, not just to, for me to come in defense of Gerard, but to be thoughtful about what he might have missed. You know, he didn't miss as much as Calvin did, or he did it um, without being more or less blatant by necessity to, to protect violence, you know? Yeah, I picked Gerard's uh, book up today. I, the, he does talk a lot about resurrection, that, oh, the, that's what resurrection is. It's a kind of a dispelling of this. In your uh, one of your blogs, talked about how evangelicals, Protestants, have to strain in order to get in touch with the suffering that Christ did on the cross. Oh, it was when you were juxtaposed. When you're talking about uh, seeing seeing the cross in the lynching tree, mm. I went back to that one this week. The Passion of the Christ, and you know, talking about sermons on at uh, Good Friday. Uh, great pains are taken to sort of try to make Christ's suffering extreme and relevant. When if you just look at the picture of these two African Americans lynched, you know, at the time, it explains itself. So to link the two together, but back in when I was in uh, the youth group, I remember hearing stories uh, about like that, where, you know, this is how much God loves you. He, he bled and he suffered this much, but then it also had this twist. Like Jesus must've been sort of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type of person, because I mean, there was even a t-shirt that said bench press this. And it was Jesus doing this, lifting himself off the ground with the cross on his back. <laughs> and he had huge muscles. <laughs> and there was also uh, one 
explanation of the cleansing of the temple, it must mean that Jesus had big muscles because those tables were not small. And so Jesus was this Rambo figure and it justifies violence at the end of the day, you know? So I just wanted to make sure I got my viewpoint in. Wanted y'all to go ahead and pick it up from there. See what you think. <laughs> That's my explanation of why the temple cleansing actually does justify violence. Cause yeah. you know, I'm sure he had an AK 47 too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, David, you've actually read Jesus and John Wayne. Is that what she's doing is kind of tracing the history of this kind of, uh, I mean, that's, that was what I grew up with. I don't know if this is predates you all or not. She traces, um, this super macho Christianity after maybe world war two or something like that. And, uh, you know, and then by the time you get to the eighties and nineties, you, you know, Jesus has got big muscles and he can shoot everybody and all that good stuff. And, but she does uh, do that. Uh, uh, in that book, trace trace this this different type of Jesus. But I went from a practical side uh, of this. Well, first of all, you really don't have a violent Jesus anywhere else. If you read the text, it never says that he strikes people. Uh, I'm not even so sure it says he strikes an the animals. But just from a, a practical side, it would seem like that if he was literally attacking people that... Um, Temple police or certainly Roman security would have stepped in pretty quickly. And, and then even their response and reaction uh, to it, they're like, okay, what authority do you have to do this act? It's not, I mean, if he would have attacked them physically, I think they would have had them arrested. I don't think that, that would have been a, been a problem. But I, I just think from the, uh, the practical side of it is, is that if you want to question whether or not he hit people or not, we could certainly look at at the rest of his life as well. There seems to be no reason to for us to believe that that there was violence involved in this towards any any human being at least. Obviously there you can't have a weapon in the temple. So you know we often Rembrandt has these pictures of these little old people, you know, cowering and Jesus beating them with the whip, you know, and well there there could be no such thing. And so if he fashioned something, it would be from straw or rope, you know, whatever would have been in the temple. And of course, I, if you know, just something to herd the cattle. So it's not hitting people. Do you mean there were metal detectors? Uh, they, stuff into they, the temple? They must have been. Uh, the Jews took it as a sign. I think they saw it as a fulfillment of scripture, you know, the, the depiction of obviously what symbolically is taking place. The sacrifices are momentarily halted. Isn't there even technical language where Jesus goes to great lengths to even take care of the the birds that he gently? Matt, they're the doves that that presumably are in cages, and so he didn't he didn't move or chase them out, but but asked the like something about it, like telling the money changers to take them with them, so that that he took the time to care to make sure that the cages oh. weren't tipped over, right? That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I've dealt with this in some detail through the years, you know, and, and I almost find it painful that you're having to convince people that, <laughs> that Jesus was not violent. It's, the, you know, this episode, and think of all the weight that has been put upon this and that it just continually gets pulled down. It just shows to me people's desperation. 
I mean, the authorities were already looking for a reason, right, to be able to accuse Jesus. So this would have been, so I like what someone said earlier, that obviously they recognized the prophetic sort of action that this was, right? That, that you know, he, he was sort of acting in the mode of the prophets, and that they recognized this and said, well, who gives you the, the authority to do this kind of sign? You know, but if he was, if he was actually like, first of all, like you said, there was no weapons that were going to be allowed, you know, into the proceedings in the in the temple you know but i would think that they would have used that opportunity to, to to just say oh well there we go there's our reason to you know to arrest him and take him into custody and but they but they don't do that at all and this does come up at his trial but of course what they quote is he said he would destroy the temple no no discussion about his action in the temple so it it apparently was his words that offended I- they could have said he tried to destroy the temple. Yeah. <laughs> he destroyed the temple. He, he overturned, you know, in other words, like he overturned sort of like the, you know, the practices of the, you know, the, the, the economics, uh, the social sort of situation there. He, you know, he was destroying it with his actions. There was a clearly an, an intervention into it. And of course, but the main thing is that, here is the Lord of the temple. Here's the one who's, here's, here's God has come to his temple. Here's the true sacrifice. And that's what John is saying, you know, throughout that, that as the Passover is happening, here is the true Passover lamb. Well, I have to quote another Psalm that, um, that keeps coming back to my mind is Psalm 27, four. David certainly knew about running from, for his life and the reprieve here of, one thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And so I really associate that psalm with the one I quoted earlier. It was kind of the, the psalm that I loved the most before I had the experience with Psalm 131 of abiding in Christ, of, of just that this is the one thing in, that's a treasure in life. Um, that I know I, I will always be about seeking and can never lose. That's what ties them together for me, uh, it, it, you know, beautifully uh, in the words there, that literally to, to dwell in the temple to ab- is to abide in Christ. Now we're talking about John 15 and the, the abiding. It's a key passage, um, abiding in the temple, abiding in Christ, and abiding in the, the, the vine. That image right there came to mind this week because as I was reading uh, the beginning, you can look it up on the blog, but July 2nd, 2020, Paul published Finding the Cross in the Lynching Tree. And it starts with these words, some wor- a, a verse written by Abel Mirapol. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. And Billie Holiday recorded that as a song. This is what struck me. To align the lynching tree with the cross. When we make this alignment, we recognize God and his children are not the cultivators of this strange fruit. Christ and Christians are that fruit. Christ himself was hung from a tree and his followers identify not with those who put him there, but the one on the lynching tree. 
I think that gets at it. That that's salvation in John is is when we abide in Christ, we get life from the vine, and dwelling in the temple means we dwell with Him all the way, like in His death. Even I know I'm not pointing to any one verse besides abiding, the abiding passage and the theme of temple and God dwelling with us, but that jumps out to me as a very large theme that really integrates those two of, of the minnow verb and the temple and even the, the prologue of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. When we identify with the oppressed, that is something key there. We are the fruit, the strange fruit. And that poem is grotesque, I know, but it's, it's important to, uh, to recognize the oppressive power that really Christianity holds. I mean, we, we wield this power ever since Constantine and we've made peace with violence. So this restoration movement, the, uh, the reorientation that undoes even our precious theory of atonement really does have to be, you know, the stuff has to be peeled back to see what John is actually saying. I'm wondering uh, if in John, his soteriology has to do ultimately with divinization, that, that the point uh, for John is to become uh, not only united with God, but to become as gods. He says, you know, is it not written in your law? Ye are gods, ye shall be gods, you know, and that the way that that looks is counterintuitive and that it, it, it looks more like what Brian was describing that the way that we become gods is to imitate Christ to take up our cross to stand with the oppressed to not put others on crosses uh, etc so the, you know it's it's over and against how you become a god in this world uh, yeah. by exercising power and dominion over others but that you would uh, take up your cross and lay down your life uh, for others but the materiology of John then is to I guess another way to talk about theosis is to talk about abiding, right? Yeah. That, 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 we, that, you know, we abide in Christ and, and that we become united with him and that ultimately, you know, it, Christ, God became man so that man can become God, you know, by participation. That this is the teaching of St. Athanasius and the early church fathers that um, the point of the incarnation was to deify creation, to deify, you know, the, the creatures, uh, God's children. Um, so the, that's the way that we're saved. You know, what do we save from? We're saved, you know, to go full circle in this conversation, we're saved from a life apart from God or a life that doesn't abide in Christ or in, in, by necessity then abides in death. So that uh, the point of Christian salvation is to abide in the life and in the truth and in the light uh, in, in Christ himself and to become unified with him and with one another uh, and ultimately to become gods ourselves. You always have to say that it's by participation, right? Like we're obviously never going to become uncreated. Uh, you know, that we're always going to become whatever we are uh, in participation uh, with, with Christ in the, you know, through the spirit in the father. Yeah. You know, theosis is the purpose of the Christian life to become like God. Um, and, and interesting enough, St. Maximus describes it as, be, as becoming uncreated by grace. Wow. It is the work of God we, 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 co-op, we cooperate and participate in by abiding in Christ. That is Jesus' completed work. We are now free to walk as he walked and participate 
in the kingdom of God. And Karl Barth is actually talking about substitutionary atonement, but he actually talks about it almost as theosis, or in, in a way that sounds like theosis in his uh, dogmatics and outline. When he's talking about Easter, he says, but the real mystery of Easter is not that God is glorified in it, but that man is exalted, raised to the right hand of God and permitted to triumph over sin, death, and the devil. Man's reconciliation with God takes place through God's putting himself in man's place and man being put in God's place as sheer act of grace. This is the vision of salvation by healing the whole person. That is no mere legal fiction declaring you to be righteous by God's work, but through our lives, he makes us so. Great. That's profound. I didn't know that part. Uh, that's a wonderful passage there in Bart. Um, and just a beautiful picture. It's kind of uh, shocking, you know, right? It's shocking to talk about, you know, when I look at my life, it's like, wow, I certainly don't, I don't seem, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't feel like a God, you know, I got, my life isn't always in accord with what it must mean to be, to live like a God. But, you know, I, I do think that that is, uh, that seems to me to be the point of John. It really does. Uh, ultimately, right, that, that we will become by grace what Christ is by nature. And there's John 17 of him, us praying, him praying that we be one with him. I mean, it just seems so obvious in the Gospel of John. And maybe we're just so saturated in the kind of penal substitutionary atonement that we've missed. I, I mean, sadly, I'm afraid we've missed the Yahweh goat for the Azazel goat that we're doing all as Azazel goat. And this, the really significant thing is that if we do that, you understand God's not in the Azazel goat. God's in the, that's the name of the other goat. <laughs> and so I'm afraid we've made salvation something that leaves, in other words, if it's all Azazel goat, I don't think that really is what Jesus is doing. Uh, in a Girardian sense, there is the, but how does he bear, how does he take away sin through what is taking place in Passover? What is to, through what is taking place in, in the Yahweh go? Through who Christ is in terms of this topic tonight, that he is the I am, that he is the, the true temple and the true sacrifice. And so, because of who he is by nature, that we can become by grace, that's all about the positive part of this. And in that, sin is taken away. But sin being taken away is a kind of negative result of this positive action on the part of Christ. Another image, I think, that's coming to me is, is like from the prologue, that the light entering um, enlightens everyone, every man. That's what I hear you saying, Paul, uh, is, is that the Yahweh goat, the, the, the pure sacrifice coming into the world, uh, it's it, it, kind of the way the, the Azazel goat fits in possibly is that drives away the sin of the world. It's, it's not like necessarily bearing away Primarily, it's a driving away of, of, it's like darkness can't be in the presence of light. And when we participate and are unified with the one who comes into the world and bear witness to him and abide in him, there's no place for sin. It's driven away. So I don't know. Yeah, I liked what 
Janice said last week that she likes the image of Christ being the one who drives the Azazel goat out into the wilderness, sort of fitting in that role. Yeah. That fits well with what I'm saying, I think. I mean, the other thing, too, in John's gospel that I think is happening, too, you know, what's being cleansed, you know, the temple that's being cleansed is, is being cleansed of the demonic sort of satanic uh, powers, right, that, that dwell not only, you know, in the sort of the systems and the of the of the temple and things like that, but just in uh, in our hearts, right? So, uh, like Origen, I'm reading his uh, his homilies on Numbers right now, which would seem like a terribly boring read. Only it's one of the best books I've ever read because Origen, you know, goes through and he says, "Well, the Book of Numbers is about you know the land. You got to read these things spiritually, you know, or mystically that the it's being cleansed." So he says, "You know, all these different kings, you know, Sihon, uh, king of Bashan." You know, is the type of you know, Bashan is a type of the world. Sion is a is a type of the devil, and you know that the Israelites are called to go into this land and just you know to overthrow these uh, powers and these kings and to cleanse the the land. And he says that um, you know that the you can t- talk about it in terms of a field, you know, where there's weeds growing or there's you know the temple that needs cleansed or whatever. But the problem is, is that these demonic forces live in our hearts. You know, and not only in the systems of injustice and things like that, but they live in, 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 in our temple, the temple of our hearts. And so the, the work of salvation, and I think that this fits in with John, we've talked about before that there's no exorcism in John because the whole gospel is an exorcism. And so what's being what we're being cleansed of is not just, you know, sin and, and evil, but also the, the powers that reign over those systems, both externally and internally in our own hearts. And so that the work that we're called to do the way that we abide in Christ is to do battle, you know, that that's what the book of Joshua is about, that that's what the book of Numbers is about, is about the Israelites doing battle with these powers uh, typified in these different kings and, and nations and things like that, and that that's the Israelites are going in to cleanse, you know, quote unquote, cleanse the, the land that Origen sees is just the spiritual uh, life that, that, that followers of Christ, because Christ himself goes in and clears out these enemies, you know, out of the temple, et cetera, out of the land, you know, quote unquote, and then calls his, his sons and daughters to follow him in that work uh, that begins in our own, in our own hearts and in our own lives, that, that cleansing of our, of our own temples through repentance. Yeah. I actually origin, I'm not sure I buy this, but you, you reminded me of it, Matt that on the two goats and this in his homily on Leviticus 10.2, let me quote Origen. He says, nevertheless, since the word of the Lord is rich and according to the opinion of Solomon, must be written on the heart, not once, but also twice and three times. Let us also now attempt to add something to what was said long ago to the best of our ability, that we may show that as a type of things to come, This one that that he goat was sacrificed to the Lord as an offering, and the other way, the other one was sent away living. Here in the Gospels, what Pilate said to the priests and the Jewish people, which of these two do you want me to send out to you? Jesus, who is called the Christ, or Barabbas? Then all the people cried out to release Barabbas, but to hand Jesus over to be killed. Behold, you have a he-goat who was sent living into the wilderness, bearing with him the sins of the people who cried out and said, Crucify, crucify. Therefore, the former is a he-goat sent living into the wilderness, 
and the latter is the he-goat which was offered to God as an offering to atone for sins and make a true atonement for those people who believe in him. But if you ask who is it who is led who has led this he-goat into the wilderness to verify that he also must be washed and clean, he says Pilate himself be, can be taken as a prepared man. <laughs> Origin is so inventive. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. I mean, whether you, like you said, whether you want to go with him, but he's wanting us to think, you know, to me, it's the it's that sort of mindset that's important. He says the once, the twice, the three times, and he means the literal, the moral, the mystical. That it's to be written in our hearts in that sense, you know, which I think is what we've been trying to do uh, in these in these classes. You know, it's very cool stuff. Yeah, but I think sometimes we in our modern sensibilities don't want to talk about, you know, or, or maybe we're a little bit uh, hesitant to talk about you know, the, the, the demonic powers and principalities and the things that hold sway over, you know, not only these evil systems and things, you know, uh, economics and, and whatever else, but just in our own hearts. But this is the bad, you know, this, this really is, I think in John, you know, he says that the ruler of this world is cast out. He has no part with me. And so we're called to that same, uh, that's not at least for origin. He's saying that the, that we're not to have any accord whatsoever with, with the evil one. No, no fellowship, no friendship, no, uh, no, no accord, no peace treaty. It's, it's total war. You know what I mean? In that sense, but it's a nonviolent, right? It's a spiritual war. He says, you know, we don't use the, the weapons of, of the flesh, you know, but it's a, it's a spiritual uh, battle that is, I think, very, very awesomely, uh, mystically handled in John's gospel. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that if we get the imagery right, then we can apply that imagery to ourselves. It's always fun getting with you guys and, 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 and you too, Janice. I don't mean to leave you out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually really glad that you're here because it's, I've said it before. It's so nice to have a, a female uh, in the group. And I, I always appreciate the stuff that you say. So, Absolutely. All right. We'll see you next week. If uh, uh, same time, same channel. God bless you guys. All right. Have a good week. Good to see everybody. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.